0: Hey, everybody. Hey, That's Miguel. how lots of people start their podcast. They, like, say hi to the f- – hey, fans.
1: Greetings, I'm listeners. Um, oh. <laughs>
0: so tell me a little bit about what prompted you to start a podcast.
2: Uh, well, I, obviously, I think it was simply time to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah, when was the first time you heard a podcast, either of you guys? Really only within the last three or four years
1: that I, like, listened to any podcast seriously. I actually got into podcasts when I
3: discovered This American Life over 10 years ago after I graduated from college.
2: Oh, so you're an early adopter. I think many of us here were kind of a little late to the party, but Mm -hmm. I think once people start listening, they'll realize the the wait was worth it.
3: Yeah, I find
2: them indispensable now. They're
3: super useful for keeping me company as I make dinner, Um, (laughs) (laughs) and
2: I stay up on the news that way. Well, I was just saying uh, to somebody offline, so to speak, that uh, it's kind of the discussion behind the discussion. Yeah, the conversation I did with Sam Adler-Bell
1: in our first episode, it was about a piece he wrote. And so you could almost read the piece and then listen to the conversation and see the number of times Sam says, oh, we've talked about this before. Mm. And, yeah, so I like the idea that it's the conversation behind the conversation. Yeah, I thought, too, that it
3: gives a window into the kinds of things that can't quite be represented in the magazine, like I was listening to the conversation with Mihail O'Shiel. And you can put his words onto the page and they have a certain rhythm, but to hear him read it live is quite another thing.
2: And one of the other great things too, it's a, I think a real unique to Commonwealth in some ways is a, the way we all sit around and talk about a lot of these things amongst ourselves, particularly at our uh, famous lunch table, which yeah. uh, some of our listeners have actually joined us there and they see how it operates. But these are the things we talk about amongst ourselves. So yeah. we just think it's a great thing to bring to our uh, audience as well. Yeah. I mean, when we
1: first started talking about doing a podcast, we would joke about just putting a microphone at the lunch table.
2: And we still might. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a bad idea.
4: Can you tell us a bit about the format?
2: Well, I guess the format's going to be taking shape. But generally, we like the idea of it's kind of a magazine format. You know, we might have some topical issues. We might look into things about a film that somebody's seen and really likes or a director who's out there. A book we like, a reviewer we like, a, a politician that is kind of getting our attention, and a whole bunch of things.
1: It, it, it does kind of reflect the magazine. Newsier <laughs> items shorter items, longer items, features, essays. There's kind of the equivalent of all those things in audio form in the podcast.
2: Yeah, so like we might like to touch on art, we might like to touch on a short story that somebody's read or a poet that somebody's discovered. Uh,
3: what we're trying to do is to give listeners, give our readers a way of being here with us. And that's what the magazine is. Our publisher, Tom Baker, likes to say that a magazine is—it defines a community. It's readers, it's writers, editors, everybody is kind of gathering together and turning together. And that's what happens here. That's what I've Discovered here, and I think that the desire is to make that available in an easily consumable <laughs> one-hour format, <laughs> or hour plus, <laughs> or, hour, like or plus. hour plus, yeah, uh, plus downloadable segments. But no, so I think that's the idea. It should be like the magazine, but it should also be somewhat a little bit more intimate.
2: Yeah, and even to get back to your question earlier, Megan, about why now, I mean, uh, I think Commonwealth is sort of at the point where we want to start thinking about what our readership is like in terms of a community, engaging with them in different ways, uh, beyond the website, beyond the printed page, beyond our Twitter feed. They actually get to hear our voices. This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. From our offices overlooking New York's Riverside Park, this is the Commonweal Podcast. In this episode, Commonweal senior editor Matthew Budway speaks with Paul J. Griffiths, a longtime contributor to Commonweal, about his recent essay on the English philosopher Roger Scruton, who, in his recent book, takes up the topic of Brexit. Assistant editor and Garvey Writing Fellow Griffin Olenech talks to Washington Post columnist Christine Emba about journalism in the Trump era, and our associate editor Matthew Sitman sits down with contributor Cole Stangler for a conversation about far-right populism in France. This is the Commonweal Podcast. Paul Griffiths, who recently resigned from his position as the Warren Chair of Catholic Theology at Duke University, is a longtime Commonweal contributor and the author of several books, including his latest, Christian Flesh. He's written an essay for Commonweal on the English philosopher Roger Scruton's take on Brexit, which is called The Idolatry of Home, and can be found on our website. Our senior editor, Matthew Budway speaks with Paul about Scruton's assessment of the Brexit referendum and about the limits of democracy.
5: I thought we'd start by talking about Brexit itself. Now, you recently were back in England. Uh, you're originally from England, and I wanted to know what the mood is there now when it comes to Brexit. Did you talk with anyone there who
4: voted for Brexit? Yes, I talked with lots of people there um, when I was there last month. I think the mood is generally fairly gloomy about it on all sides. That is to say, those who did vote for Brexit, many of them anyway, think that there won't really be a Brexit, that whatever arrangement has arrived at when the negotiations are done won't really be what it's supposed to be. So they're gloomy. And then on the other side, those who didn't want a Brexit at all are deeply gloomy that there's going to be anything remotely like it. So it seems to me that by 2019, nobody will be satisfied.
5: Right. And what do you think the chances are that it will actually, there will be a Brexit after all, and that this won't be uh, preempted by another referendum or by some last
4: ditch effort to save Britain's membership? I think it's really hard to predict the chances of a last minute referendum If I had to predict, I would think it will not happen. I would think that something will be negotiated by the spring of 2019. So I think something will go ahead. Whether it will look much like what a hard Brexit might have been is another question, but something I think will happen.
5: When Brexit happened in June of 2016, a lot of people were alarmed, but people became more alarmed in retrospect when they started talking about it as a harbinger of of, later outbreaks of populism, and especially uh, the election of Donald Trump in this country later in the year. How much similarity do you think Brexit has with those other recent episodes?
4: I think there are some overlaps, but also many, many differences. Um, I mean, the the obvious overlap, and I think it is real, is that both in Britain or England anyway, there is significant disaffection about questions uh, surrounding immigration That's also true here in the U.S., though with slightly different flavor. So I think that's similar, and part of the reaction to that is to try to reestablish a more or less imagined past in which those things weren't a problem. So I think there are overlaps there. But I think many, many other things are different. I think that the, the sense that Americans have, or many of them, that America is what it really is, the greatest power in the world, and that it can do what it likes, that is completely absent in England, so, and has been for a long time for obvious reasons. And so there's a sense that whatever happens, Brexit or not, the thing England has to do is to develop and maintain a status as a, a minor power with a significant history, and that's really different from what goes on here. So overlap and difference.
5: So let's, I guess, turn to the Scruton's book. Now, Scruton defends Brexit, it defends the people who voted for it, And uh, he does this by drawing a distinction between oikophobia, which is literally hatred of home, but can also be understood just as a kind of homelessness or feeling at home in more than one place. And then oikophilia, which is the love of home. And he connects this to another dichotomy between people he calls anywheres and people he calls somewheres. Maybe for the purposes of this conversation, we can just use the shorthand of somewheres and anywheres. I'm wondering how useful you find this way of approaching the question. You write in your article that it seems like a pretty good description of different temperaments, but is it also a good description of the political phenomenon?
4: Yeah, I think it has some force even, there, even as a description of the political phenomenon in the sense that disproportionately Brexiteers, those who supported Brexit, do have, at least rhetorically and I think also existentially, personally, sense that where they live, whether it's England, Wales, Scotland or Ireland, is important and they want it important to them and they want it to remain as they imagine it to have been. So I think it does overlap with that political movement, a kind of populism, if you like. And I think the other side of it does too. I think there there actually is a, a stratum of society, both in Europe and in the United States, That is effectively what Scruton likes to call anywheres. People who are very movable, they in fact do move a lot, they speak many languages, they have several passports often, they are self-consciously and by desire and design not rooted. I think that's that's a real difference. It's a sociologically measurable difference as well.
5: So... You write about Scruton's identification of home with the nation. You write for Scruton, the locus for law and politics should also be the home place. And European Union membership makes that difficult or impossible for the English. But this connection can be weakened. One could find one's appetites for home things satisfied by the local air and food and languages and habits, the things one hears and sees and touches every day. But one doesn't need one's appetites for politics and law to be met as locally as as that, I thought that was an, an interesting point, but I wonder, uh, even if it's possible to, to have a robust affection for one's home place, for the things of one's home, and also a kind of transnationalist politics, is it possible to have a transnationalist democratic politics and also be oikophilic? What I mean is, doesn't democracy depend on people being able to communicate with each other? So at least it requires a shared language, because language is, after all, the medium of persuasion and democracy. In theory, any, re- any healthy democracy depends on persuasion.
4: Yeah, that's a good question. And I think there's a great deal of truth in what you suggest. My own tentative view about all that is that democracy does indeed require communication. It requires a shared set of understandings and much more. In order for it to work, it never works very well, but in order for it to work at all, it requires those things. And so when you get to the transnationals, say the European or even the world stage, democracy is not going to work well. I don't myself think that's too much of a problem. Um, I don't think that we ought to think that it's sensible to decide democratically about matters like, I don't know, which side of the road we drive on or which currencies we use or regulations that govern, for example, emissions of carbon into the atmosphere. I think that if we do try to decide democratically about those things, it goes extraordinarily badly, and we simply should give that up. I think that democracy is very good, or can be very good, for much more local questions, and that's where it's valuable. I'm myself entirely happy with the thought of there being transnational or even global rules and regulations that are not, in fact, determined by democratically elected representatives. I think that's simply a necessity in the world we have now. The most striking instance of that for me is that um, democracies are extraordinarily bad at dealing with the kinds of structural problems that have led to climate change. And that will continue to be the case. We will simply fail to deal with it if we try to deal with it democratically. And yet we need not to fail, or at least not as dramatically as we probably will. So it's a question of levels, I think.
5: So you think a transnational politics or transnational polity is necessarily technocratic and not democratic? I think in the end that's right, yes. And that's not necessarily a problem uh, as long as the right questions are, are being decided by the technocracy.
4: Right. And that, of course, is the trick because the problem about technocracies is that they tend to be expansionist and they tend to want to answer more questions than they ought to. So there needs to be a way to check that. But if that could be done, then yes, if the technocracy is actually answering the right questions, the questions it's good at answering, I'd be all for it. But I admit that's not going to be easy to do. But then none of it's easy to do. And democracy isn't easy to do either. So that's no objection, perhaps.
5: One problem then is perhaps. The idolatry of home, as the title of your article puts it, uh, but another is the idolatry of democracy, because in your estimation, democracy is not the proper tool to deal with every kind of political question.
4: Right, exactly. And I think it's difficult to say that in most Western nation states, because democracy, the idea of democracy, or at least the word democracy, holds such a powerfully positive place. And any critique of it sounds like either, I don't know, either fascism or state socialism or something else equally unpleasant. But I don't think that if most people think a bit harder about it, they necessarily actually do think that. Most of us are happy, I think, happy enough with various aspects of our lives, being regulated in ways that are not remotely democratic. So if we can all get a bit clearer about that, then we could perhaps arrive at a more just and productive sense of what democracy is good for.
5: I mean, isn't one problem here that the European Union presents itself to the public as a democratic institution? only to defend itself against its critics, including the Brexiteers.
4: It does, and I would that it didn't. I mean, the membership of the European Parliament is democratically elected in a strange kind of way, but the turnouts are typically so small that the idea that they actually have any mandate is ludicrous. And I agree that it's problematic that it's defended in that way, but that's that's what we have to live with at the moment anyway.
5: Well, at the end of your uh, review essay, you write that... Scruton's oikophilic leavers aren't home lovers, but rather home idolaters. And perhaps English Catholics are in a better position to see that than most. Why do you think so? What is it about being a Catholic that would allow an Englishman or anybody else in Great Britain to see
4: the problem with Brexit? I think two things. Um, One is that I think it's intrinsic and proper to being Catholic that one's loyalties can never, one's loyalties here below that is, prior to the eschaton and all that, but one's loyalties can never be exhaustively accounted for by loyalty to a nation state. That's to say Catholics are members of Christ's body and therefore members of a transnational church. The Catholic church is the largest transnational entity there is by most measures. And so there's always a sense of limited loyalty. And nation states typically don't want limited loyalty. They want all of it. And so Catholics, I think, are in a good position to see what kinds of loyalty are and aren't appropriate to the nation states they live in. So that's one reason. But there's another that's peculiar to England, which is that there was a reformation in England, and it was violent and bloody on every side, martyrs on every side, and unpleasantness on every side. But once that shook out and settled down by the 17th century, uh, English Catholics found themselves a minority with almost no legal rights, and that persisted until the 19th century. And so there's a particular history there that gives, I think, English Catholics a sense that whatever else they are, they can't unproblematically and directly be uh, exhaustively loyal to the United Kingdom because of that history.
5: Is there some kind of tension in Catholicism between the universalism, the the small-c Catholic nature of Catholicism, uh, which means that it's international, and the importance that it gives theologically to the incarnational, the embodied, which means necessarily the local, or as you put it, the things one hears and sees and touches every day? Is this just a tension, or does this create conflict in the way Catholics tend to think about the relationship between
4: their religion and their local place. Hmm. Yeah, I think tension is a reasonable way to characterize it rather than conflict. I think that, you know, as well as I, that there's a a Catholic doctrinal position about this, which uses the, um, the super slippery word subsidiarity. And That's in some ways meant to account for this. That's to say, locality, the incarnation of where your flesh is, where you eat, drink, and have your mode of being in the world, is deeply important because of the nature of uh, the kinds of creature we are and because of the incarnation of the Triune Lord as Jesus Christ. So that's all extremely important, but it's not the only thing to say. That is to say, as well as the incarnation, and indeed inseparable from it, There is a transcendental, universal, eternal, triune Lord who is incarnate as that. And so we all, as individuals, participate in something greater than the incarnational specificity of our local place. And so that's how it ought to go. But I think it's also right to say that sometimes it does become a conflict. And People set up one thing or another as the only thing to say, and then it's a knockdown, drag out battle, and someone's got to lose. But it doesn't need to be that way. I think you can have both as long as they're articulated well with one another. Thank you very much for uh, being with us today. Thank you, Matthew. It's been my pleasure.
5: The Commonweal Podcast is supported in part by the generosity of Commonweals Associates. To become part of this giving tradition, log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the donate link.
2: Next, we have assistant editor and Garvey writing fellow Griffin Olenek in conversation with Christine Emba, a columnist for The Washington Post. Griffin spoke with Christine about economic inequality and the ethics and spirituality of journalism in the Trump era.
3: Christine Emba and I are here to discuss an event that she moderated last night at Fordham University in New York entitled, A Moral Economy. Faith and the Free Market in an Age of Inequality. Cardinal Joseph Tobin of the Newark Archdiocese delivered a lecture on how Catholic social teaching can light the way to a more just future. Jeffrey Sachs, an economist at Columbia University and a regular visitor to the Vatican, delivered a response. Today, we're here to continue the conversation that Christine began last night. One of the most moving parts of Cardinal Tobin's remarks, I found, was when he talked about what the meaning of inequality was. And he had this very interesting formulation, which was that inequality means that I sometimes can't see other people for who they really are. Hmm. And a more equal economy would be one in which I can see another person for their entire truth. That is, I see what goes beyond the immediately visible. I'm able to consider them. And he spoke from his pastoral experience. And that seemed very much, I'd never seen him speak in person before, but that seemed very much who he was, a pastor, somebody who guides people, somebody who's close to people. And he talked about this experience with a man named Ollie. And I forget how he had encountered this person, but he was speaking about the question of racial difference. And he said, Joe, Joseph is T- his name, right? That said, do you love me? And he said, of course I love you, you know. He said, no, but do you love me as a black man? And he said, Cardinal Tobin said, well, and he wasn't a cardinal at the time. He said, well, what do you mean? I don't, I don't see your race. I don't see no. you as different.
0: And Ollie said. understood was problematic.
3: Exactly. He said, no, you need to love me as a black man, as I actually am. And he said, that's why I, that's the metaphor that he uses to himself. We blind ourselves to the full reality of another person's situation. And that's how inequality exists mm. because we simply don't see it or we choose not to see it. We've got structures, mental structures, social structures that prevent us from seeing the full way that another person exists in the world, that every aspect of their their personhood is important. So I thought it was so interesting that this invisibility, this learning to see, that's partly what we need to do in the economy, is to learn to see the people who perform services for us, mm-hmm. the people who are invisible. There needs to be a light shined on them. And then on the flip side of this, Jeffrey Sachs was speaking about invisibility in this other way, uh, which is this notion of the invisible hand. Well, we believe in the invisible hand. I mean, ask Americans about you know economics, they'll say, well, the invisible hand gu- guides everything. Mm-hmm. So I was asking myself, well, how is it that we have On the one hand, this inability to see what's real, that is the fact that there's inequality and we don't believe in it. And on the other hand, we have something that we can't verify at all, which is the existence of an invisible hand, but we can't touch it. So there's this kind of contradiction that I was observing.
0: Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why young people or young Catholics are beginning or maybe they have been all along. I mean, I'm a convert, but mm. are particularly interested in Catholic social teaching when it comes to these questions. Because as you say, there is mm. a more, even if you don't agree with it or have questions, there mm. is an actually like rounded theory of the human person. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are actually like pretty clear directives um, as to what the common good is and like what mm-hmm. that could look like. And they are very distinct from what we have now. exactly. Uh, and so it's just, it's a fascinating contrast to make. And one is clearly like more attractive than the other. <laughs>
3: I found it so interesting when you asked Cardinal Tobin and Jeffrey Sachs, well, okay, so neoliberalism, Contemporary capitalism doesn't seem to be working. Does the church have a system, or do you, Jeffrey Sachs, have a system that you recommend? And they kind of hedged a little bit. They're mm. well, we don't have a system. That is, they don't have a complete picture or an idealized version of how things would work in a utopia.
0: Invisibility and visibility. I think that's a really interesting dynamic mm. to talk about because inequality, I think, really does sort of create a chasm. Mm-hmm. Of sort of lived experience and even contact Mm -hmm. between people of different classes or races Mm -hmm. or amounts of money, like just like bringing this up, the idea of invisibility. I think that's one of the things that has sort of come to light in the journalistic profession Mm -hmm. and news reporters Mm -hmm. after the Trump election, Mm -hmm. because all of a sudden people realize like, oh, they're, wow, they're like, People who vote for Trump and like maybe some of them are poor and perhaps they live in Appalachia. Well, we must go find them. Hmm. And it's sort of like people parachuting into these places that they apparently didn't realize existed Hmm. before to, you know, try and scrape some meaning from these people who they don't know. And that's not necessarily making them more visible and it's also not necessarily seeing them as a whole person Mm -hmm. like if you go to sort of Midwest town and like I'm going to write a profile of like sad white person whose factory closed, like that's very a very flat it's part
3: of their story but it's not the whole story (laughs) yeah that's not the whole
0: person and so I think that's even if you feel sort of guilty and responsible it's a danger that you can still fall into. As for me, uh, how I try and make the invisible visible. One of the things that I have found both exciting and troubling mm. as a writer and journalist is the idea of race, mm. which is like something I think about as mm. a black woman, obviously, but especially in this time period, mm. I notice increasingly how few people of color there often are in newsrooms Mm -hmm. and how sometimes just being there and writing from that perspective, which is actually quite difficult for me because I I don't necessarily like love first person writing or like spilling my guts before the world. Mm -hmm. So why am I an opinion writer? You ask a great question. (laughs) Um, But I think that actually some of my best columns or the columns that have resonated with people the most Mm. were some of the most gruesome for Mm. me to write, Mm. like writing after Charlottesville. And I wrote that piece Mm. that was, it was really just like kind of a yelp of desperation, Mm. just like, why is nobody listening? And people kind of felt that. Or after one of the many Mm -hmm. police shootings, I wrote about how, like, I'm a black woman and I, I have an older brother. Who is also black. And like when this happens, I can totally imagine this being a member of my family and like what that feels like. Mm. And so many people wrote to me after I wrote that piece saying, like, wow, I never, I never like thought about that. Like Mm. I never thought about a real person, basically. And so just like being in the place where I can try at least to bring an experience to life that other people might not have encountered Mm. is hopefully one, one way of making the invisible visible. But I also know that I have a lot of blind spots myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, went to, for and I went to an Ivy League school. Now I like live in downtown DC and work at the Washington Post. Like there's a lot that I'm missing. And so I think part of the task also is to try and remember that and to stay aware and to look for those stories, even if they are outside of your comfort zone or not your area of expertise. And that's something that I I need to challenge myself to do more Mm -hmm. and I think would challenge all reporters to do more. And Mm -hmm. yes, also to create the whole picture of the person, Mm -hmm. again, not just covering like, oh, this is a shooting or like, that's a homeless person. But like, what else is going on? Like, who really are we? Not just Mm -hmm. the surface activity. Mm -hmm.
3: Deep values are at stake. People's lives are at stake. It seems like the stakes for journalism have never been higher. Mm -hmm. The stakes for writing have never been higher. And this idea of that I can somehow be detached as a writer or as a person of faith, it no longer stands. You have to take a stand.
0: Yeah, Um, I think that's to go back to the vocation question. In some ways, that's also thinking of my work as a journalist hmm. as a vocation is also one thing that makes me do it, I guess, because it, it can be sort of very uncomfortable mm, um, mm-hmm. and you, like, you see a lot and it's, it's kind of a downer yeah. a lot of the time. But thinking of it as a vocation, like what can I offer to the world?
3: Mm. Which... It was interesting. I was at the Vatican in, I guess this would have been 2013 because Francis had just been elected. And I got to meet with Cardinal Turkson, who Mm -hmm. at the time, and I'm not sure if he still is, was the prefect for the justice and peace dicastery. And I met with a Canadian Jesuit named Michael Cherney who I guess he was sort of like the cardinal's right hand person in planning... The economic things, the head of their economic initiatives. And he was saying that actually the things that they were most excited about was not so much the church's social teaching, which they had like 20 or 30 pamphlets of that stuff printed out and I went to take them. He's like, no, don't take that stuff. What's really interesting is the retreats that we've been offering to like oil executives and p- people in charge of corporations that operate in Africa, because that's where, like, that's where people are actually in a position to influence things. And if we can get them thinking about the common good, then they might set an example. So it was it was so surprising to me because you've got all the theory and I felt like that's what the event was heavy on, but you don't have the actual practical things mentioned in the speech, but they did have, the, the Vatican itself, at least the justice and peace dicastery, uh, does have kind of a robust set of programs. So he was very excited to show me that.
0: I'm sure there are people praying for Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. Like that must be the case. But I also think that's a really interesting way of sort of thinking about the problems like one of the one of the topics I've been really fascinated by recently is billionaires Mm -hmm. basically like these extremely extremely wealthy people who really like you said like do have the power to um, enact great change and some of them are doing it sort of I mean like you have the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation where Mm -hmm. they are like giving away all of their money Mm -hmm. uh, and Warren Buffett is trying to do the same and their ideas like when they have an idea of a thing that they want to do, they can put that into action. And so Melinda Gates is really into like contraception in the third world. Like Bill Gates is into ending malaria. And one wonders what sort of spiritual formation or even ethical formation they get in deciding, you know, what to do. How okay is it to know that you could possibly have this much control also over other people's lives, over the world Mm -hmm. really when you think about you know the influence and the reach that these people have Mm -hmm. it's is anybody sort of watching the watchmen i guess Mm -hmm. Or like who's who's keeping an eye on that because they're just people and they have like lots of advisors but at the end of the day they're just like you and i i'm not sure that i would trust myself to you know pick the one problem in the world that's most important and fix it who would i ask Mm -hmm. how do you teach virtue? Mm -hmm. How do you teach ethics? How Mm -hmm. do you teach people to think not about themselves and not Mm. in the near term? I'm just very interested in billionaires these days, (laughs) reading a book (laughs) called The Givers. I can't remember the author. It came out recently. It's very good. Mm. It talks about just like the sort of different areas of philanthropy, Mm -hmm. how sort of like the wealthy from like either tech or Mm -hmm. old industry or like other places are sort of taking over philanthropy Mm -hmm. but they note that people even the wealthy even those with like the most money still tend to give to their interests, which is not necessarily that helpful. Hmm. Um, Like, Princeton really does not need another $20 billion. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, the Metropolitan Opera Mm -hmm. is fine. Mm -hmm. There are, like, many other things that you could give your money to, but Mm -hmm. people still tend to just say, like, well my kid goes here or I live in this town, so I'm going to give all of my money to this cause, Mm -hmm. even though in the broader sense, it doesn't necessarily make much sense. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other group of people. This is also a concept that I find very interesting who have gotten really into data-based or research-based giving, which is one way of measuring Mm -hmm. what good you can bring, but it's not necessarily a holistic way Mm -hmm. of measuring good or like real human quantities Mm -hmm. it's just like very hard to decide Mm -hmm. i think Mm -hmm. and those are the questions that we need to answer Mm
3: -hmm. i like this idea of that i'm kind of getting the sense from you the sense from the questions that you bring or the um, the way that you think about things this comfort with a process that's unfolding or the comfort with incompleteness, like the sense that the journalist's task, the writer's task, and really the Catholic or every Christian, every human's task is to keep asking questions, but to keep formulating responses. You're receptive to the the messages that the universe kind of sends you or others send you. You don't have a lot of stage fright. There's a great kind of courage in it. And I'm wondering if the, the, the virtue that we need now most is courage and discernment. And that can take so many different forms, but where do you find courage or what gives you courage to continue doing your job, to continue writing, to continue asking questions?
0: I was kind of chuckling a little bit while you said that because another struggle of mine, Hmm. I just really live a struggle life right now, is that I'm really uncomfortable with uncertainty, actually. Hmm. I hate it. Mm -hmm. It is very uncomfortable for me. I do not like it. So the fact that I apparently give off the impression that I don't is fascinating to me hmm, hmm. courage and discernment hmm. yeah those those are good virtues I mean I think you're right courage is what it takes to keep sort of forging forward even hmm. when things look crazier than ever
3: super bleak
0: <laughs> yeah and yeah discernment I mean right now really the whole I think well unfortunately not the whole country but many of us are waking up to how important discernment is and just Mm. like knowing what to believe and who to trust and sort of where to go on a sort of very basic, like, what website should I go to to read the news Mm. and a far more macro, like, what value system is real, Mm. what really matters in my life? Where do I find the courage? I mean, again, to keep reminding myself that like, it's not just me existing Mm. sort of atomized in the world. Mm. Like there's more going on that is not under my control, but hmm. that all things work for good in some way. Hmm. I know the plans I have for you.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're for your
0: welfare. Yeah, and I don't know. Trying to also look for the good hmm. in some ways, like there, there are some good things happening. I think so. <laughs> like there, even just I, we're sitting in this like room, just like even the view from this window is like incredible it's beautiful like beautiful green trees were overlooking the hudson blue sky nice clouds like yeah i'm trying to keep an eye on like what is good still out there even if it's like the tiniest things or the biggest things yeah this is i have a lot to think about now you've like asked me very interesting questions that i need to like take home and meditate on
5: Commonweal is the leading independent Catholic journal of public affairs, religion, literature, and the arts. We offer a number of subscription options. Log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the subscribe link.
2: Finally, Commonweal's associate editor, Matthew Sittman, speaks with contributor Cole Stangler and tries to get some insights on the rise of far-right populism in France. Cole is a Paris-based journalist who writes about labor and politics, and in this segment, Matt and Cole talk about the National Front and the challenges facing President Emmanuel Macron.
1: I guess by way of introduction and to get started, I was thinking back to the very first piece you wrote for us, which was in November of 2016. And you know that fall, of course, was the fall that uh, Donald Trump elected, and that was shortly after Brexit, and then Marine Le Pen was in the running for the French presidency. And that first piece you wrote for us, this was the very first sentence something very nasty is in the air. (laughs) And that piece was a very pessimistic piece. It seemed like you actually thought she could win. It's now a little under two years later. I'd be interested in your thoughts on starting with that first piece you wrote for us, what you got right, what you got wrong, or just what your evaluation of the political situation is, especially in France, but in the United States too, perhaps over that time period. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Matt. I think everyone was feeling extremely pessimistic
6: yeah. at that time, not just in the United States but in France yeah. too um, after the, the Trump election. Yeah. There really was a feeling in the air that this could have been possible and and I think that in a lot of ways the National Front should not be written off. Macron, the the president that was that was elected and has been been in office now for for just over a year has made statements to that effect and has been credited with dismantling the the force of the National Front. You're saying he's making those statements. I'm saying Emmanuel Macron is making those statements. Yeah. And I think a lot of the way that the, the coverage has been surrounding his presidency has kind of driven home that narrative, this idea that the national front has, has kind of had its its moment of glory, yeah. as it were, and now is, is, has kind of faded away. And, I, and I, I don't think that's the case. When I wrote the piece in November... So this was just after the primary for France's mainstream right-wing right. party, not the mm-hmm. National Front, but what's known as the Les Républicains, which is the Republicans. And, that was the party yeah. of, of Nicolas Sarkozy. And then the nominee was François Fillon, who ended up, was presumed to be the, main, the the favorite, but the heavy favorite, and basically had a campaign that was marred by a number of scandals that caused him to lose traction and open the door, really, for Emmanuel Macron to, to kind of step into the void and win the election. Marine Le Pen performs uh, not so well. In the election, I think she could have done a, a little bit better. One of the, the things that really struck me was the the debate between Macron and Le Pen. So after after the first round, Le Pen seemed headed towards a potentially significant score, and I think the debate that she had against Macron, where she
1: you know flopped miserably, I think really kind of sealed her fate. When I was editing that piece, I was editing it in central Pennsylvania during the Thanksgiving holiday. Some of our listeners will know that I grew up in central Pennsylvania, and the county where I grew up went 70-something percent for Trump. My parents' zip code went 77% uh, for Trump. So I was editing this piece <laughs> in the heart of Trump country, and one of the things you drew out in that piece is that a lot of her support was coming from places that were similar to places where I grew up, sort of rust belt, you know, burned out, kind of de towns, Maybe you can walk us through a little bit of where her support came from, but also how we kind of went from you writing that piece in November, thinking she really had a shot of winning, to how did Macron kind of step into that void and end up doing so well? Mm. I think to answer the, the
6: first part of the question, the National Front gets a lot of support from from blue collar workers, from from the working class. If you look at the polls, it's something they that they vaunt a lot, but it's a, it's a, it's a fact. If you look at the polls, there it's 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 unquestionable that the National Front does have really substantial support from the working class. So you have kind of two different components, but either way, the blue collar workers, the service sector workers, Le Pen performs very strongly in the polls, and the National Front continues to do pretty well in, in the polls among them. And, and really, that that's concentrated if in really the north of. France and kind of the eastern part of France, which is where heavy industry really used to have a much more prominent place. And and a lot of those jobs have gone, not unlike the Rust Belt in the United States. It's pretty stunning if you can look at the unemployment rate in France. correlates very significantly with, with the national front vote. Unemployment in France is around 10%. So it's something that's a much more prominent concern for a lot of people than in the United States. France has had this basically systemic a high level of unemployment for for 30 years or so. And it's really a significant question looming overall of of political life is how do you address unemployment? Mm -hmm. And also the question of what do you do with people that are unemployed, not just creating new jobs, but also making sure that those people have services that are providing them with a decent living. And that was something that the National Front really kind of pivoted to. You know, if you go back to the party's roots in the 1970s, this was a a xenophobic far right party. It still is. I think it's fair to call it a xenophobic far right party. But their main focus was immigration. Their main focus was French national identity. And while that is an, an important element of the National Front today, they've really taken up this mantle of protecting the weakest parts of French society, the, the forgotten France, what they talk about a lot, mm-hmm. these parts of the country that have kind of been the losers of globalization, the losers under the EU. And I think also it should be pointed out, the National Front, when they criticize the EU, and this isn't to, to justify the, the er, er, you know every way they, they paint this discourse, but the EU creates a lot of problems for working people in France. There are laws, there are directives that are set up by the European Union that block heavy public investment, mm-hmm. that make sure that governments can't pursue basic Keynesian economic policies, and it's it's painted as a boogeyman. But when the National Front criticizes EU and criticizes the lack of jobs in France and the neoliberal drive of the European Union, you know, those ideas resonate with people. And and it should be said, and this is, you know, kind of the same debate, that, the never-ending debate that happens in the United States of what's responsible for Donald Trump? Right. You know, is it is it just the economic anxiety, you know, which has now become this kind of cliche? Or is it racism? And I think obviously the response is, you know, it's, it's both. And to say that, right. that mm-hmm. one is divorced and the other is is, is ridiculous. Right. So sure, immigration and fear of immigration and the other and racism also is, is responsible for the National Front success. But to only focus on that, I find kind of silly. And I, I wrote it in, in the piece and, you know, 10 million people in France voted for the National Front more than there should be are probably unreconstructed racists. And that's, that should be cause for significant concern. But I have trouble believing, and maybe I'll, I'll be wrong, but I have trouble believing that 10 million people in France are, are basically frothing at the mouth, you know,
1: racist, you know, xenophobes. Right. So th- those are some of the reasons you thought... Uh, Le Pen could win, especially, again, after, after Brexit and after Trump, it could seem like the kind of third act in this horrible play. Yeah. And again, for, for listeners who might not follow French politics, we're basically saying that after Brexit, after Trump, the French presidential election, it seemed like the far right National Front Party could actually seize the presidency of France. But that didn't happen. So... Why did that not happen? One of the the main mistakes or maybe misconceptions
6: when when people look at Macron and think about French politics today and see how Le Pen lost is this idea that Macron, because he had such a sweeping victory against Le Pen in the second round, again, like 60, more than 60 percent of the vote, people assume that he has this big mandate. People look at the legislative elections as well, assume he has a big popular mandate for his policies. And he, he really, he really doesn't. So I think that the most important thing to understand is Macron came to power because of a very specific set of circumstances that enabled him to sneak into the second round. And if you look at that first round results, again, there's the two rounds. If no one wins 50% in the first round, they go to the second round. In the first round, Macron had just over, I think, a quarter of the vote, just a little bit over 25% of the vote. He came in first, but there were four candidates that were all polling neck and neck. And really, Macron snuck into (laughs) this uh, second round. And then faced with the option of Le Pen versus Macron, I think, you know, voters... And again, we can talk about differences between France and the United States, but this was something that I think voters, the, the choice is pretty obvious, that they went ahead and selected Macron. And in the debate performance as well, I think, increased that margin. I'm not sure Le Pen really had a chance of, of winning under the circumstances, but I think voters were really upset by this debate performance where she was clearly outmatched, messing up basic facts, really aggressive, and just, you know, not dissimilar from the way Donald Trump performed. <laughs> In his debates. Right. But I think in France, the reaction was, this is, this is unacceptable. Is there just one that debate? cost her some
1: points. There was one debate for the second round. Well, that might be a good chance to talk about another piece you've written to us more recently, which we called basically a letter from Paris, sort of a dispatch. Since you live in Paris... Which included both some comments on Macron's policies once he had been elected and and kind of taking the reins of government, but also just your impression being on the ground. So Macron did win this resounding victory, even if it was not as resounding as sometimes the numbers might portray. And he comes into office and what's his agenda like? What's he been trying to do as
6: president? Macron has, has promised since, since taking office to have a really vigorous reform agenda. And with his prime minister, Edouard Philippe, they've been pretty aggressively going and pursuing that agenda. That includes uh, labor law was, was the first big plank of those reforms. So the idea basically weakening French labor regulations to kind of give companies more flexibility, make it easier to lay off workers. And the idea was this is supposed to tackle this Again, like I mentioned before, this central question over the the, um, French economic and political life, which is how do you tackle unemployment? And the idea was, this is a a link that I think is more than disputable, but the idea was by loosening labor
1: regulations, you're going to stimulate job growth. So what did it mean to kind of overhaul labor law? Like what was and what was the reaction of the French citizenry? The labor law reform, you know,
6: I think. So going back, this is this was in the fall of of 2017. This was kind of a first big test for Macron. Many French presidents have promised to pursue ambitious (laughs) reforms of the welfare state, most notably in the the 90s under um, uh, Prime Minister Alain Juppé, who was Chirac's prime minister had a social security reform that was derailed by massive protests by labor unions. So Macron says, you know, he's going to pursue this pro-business agenda to stimulate the French economy, and he goes after a really bold move, which is to tackle labor law and to decrease the, some of the protections that the workers enjoy. And I think people were, were, were generally opposed to it, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. Because the the National Assembly Votes to do it anyways
1: Well one thing that struck me in your letter from Paris Was that, and maybe this could help us Segue a bit into some of the differences Between French politics And American politics at the moment How comparing them might help us understand Each of them, is that you said Macronism is Kind of in the background of French people's lives In a way that Trump is not in the background Of our lives That you know, you say Donald Trump to anyone At a bar, at a Thanksgiving dinner, you know, at a family gathering, and it kind of elicits everyone has an opinion on it, everyone's upset about it or defensive about it, as it might be. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Like, so, I mean, you're living in Paris, you've been living there for the last two years. What did you mean when you say that, like, people just don't care about Macron the way we're carrying, we seem to care about Donald Trump? So I should say before I, I respond, I, I still basically er,
6: er, maintain, basically. Ba- basically agree with what I with what I wrote a, a few months. And I'm much sure that that piece probably came out in yeah. January, it's been a while February. since we really,
1: yeah. Uh, it was early spring, I think, when we published it. So right, it's early spring, early spring. a little bit. Yeah, and
6: yeah, no, I think we can maybe talk about what's the contemporary or, or immediate developments that I think might cause me to maybe modify that that statement a little bit. But but basically, the I agree with the thrust of it, which is that. You know, Trump has forced a lot of people to become incredibly, to be more political in a way that people that don't really spend their lives thinking about politics that now are spending their days either on Twitter or getting, and it's not necessarily a, a good thing either or a healthy right. thing, but it's something that forces people to adjust to this new political reality that we're living under. Trump has that kind of polarizing effect on people. And Macron is some, you know, Macron actually, if you look at the the polls, Trump, I think, has around 45 percent approval ratings, if I'm not mistaken, something like that. Macron has lower approval ratings than that now in the the 30s. And you wouldn't know it um, just based on the way the media coverage and and based on the general kind of atmosphere in, in, in the country. Macron has very low approval ratings, but it's not something that is as divisive I think also part of that has to probably do with the, the policies that are that are being pursued. As much as I've been critical of, of Macron, I think that you know there are some, some substantive, uh, you know, substantial differences between between the two. But perhaps to focus on maybe one of the, the similarities, in which I tried to, to write in in the piece, is that. You know, Macron gets portrayed as and I think a lot of it has to do with what we're dealing with the United States. Macron gets portrayed as being a kind of defender of Western liberal values. And fortunately, we have people like him. This is the the logic. Fortunately, we have people like him and Merkel to be able to stand up for the mantle of liberal democracy in the face of uh, these threats coming from the United States.
1: The (laughs) post-war order. Right. Yeah.
6: He upholds these basic liberal values. He's a liberal at heart. He believes in democracy. He believes in certain you know, liberal values. Norms, free speech, uh, protecting the rights of minorities, etc. And one of the, I think, really, really heinous policies that Macron's party has pursued is immigration and asylum law reform. So Macron, who portrays himself as... Someone who needs to assume Europe's responsibility as a land of asylum for people that are seeking refuge, the people that are, that are fleeing these conflicts and notably the way that he's kind of sparred with the, the new Italian prime minister and, and the government's backed by the far right party there. But if you actually look at the the policies that that are being adopted, this asylum law reform, which basically decreases, there's a number of elements. But I think one of the one of the most important parts is that it, it basically decreases the amount of time people have to appeal their asylum request being. being and what denied.
1: kinds of people are?
6: Requesting asylum, uh, you have you have people coming from um, from the Mediterranean, coming from from Africa. You have people coming from more eastern countries and and Eastern Europe. And You also have people. It's it's much less today, you know, but Syria and Afghanistan and Pakistan, which is also significantly less than the, the, than, than it was in, in 2015. But there still is, you know, more than 100,000, if I'm not mistaken, from this year so far. Mm-hmm. Fleeing the, fleeing the, the <laughs> conflicts in Syria and coming and to come into Europe. And, you know, that's a really clear example of, I think, Macron failing to, to live up to these ideas, and not just failing to live up to these ideas, but actually actively pursuing policies that are making sure that it's easier to deport people that are coming to France or that are living in France and do not have their papers in order. Macron is, is pursuing policies that make that easier. And I think, you know, in some ways it's... it's, it's the hypocrisy of it is in, in a lot of ways more infuriating you know mm-hmm. or as infuriating
1: as, as trump all right well uh some predictions 2020 the united states who's going to be elected president you're going to make me do this yeah. I, I i it's a difficult
6: difficult question to answer okay i think right now if bernie sanders looked at the polls and decided not to run you know it wouldn't make a lot of sense i think he'd be crazy not to run you okay. know, given given the given the, the advantage he currently enjoys all right and uh who's going to be the next president of france that's a harder question. I think harder. it's even a harder question to harder. to answer. Or we could be dealing with Trump and Macron in our you know dy- dystopian world in another <laughs> six years. I I really, I really hope not. But well, I think we've covered
1: a lot of bases. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.
2: The Commonweal podcast was produced by our community and events manager, Megan Ritchie, and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. David Dalt did the editing. We'll be back soon with the next episode of the Commonweal podcast. If you like what you've heard, we have extended versions of these segments either through our website or on your favorite podcast feed. This is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening.